Jesus. Uh, where's my glasses? Yep, excuse me. Yep, that's what happens. All right. Oh, I see you now. So we're going to do a little two-part sermon series today and next week. And it's this idea of the sacred, if not ironic, endless assembly of God here presented. But to get us thinking about it, I want to quote what I've quoted before, I know, but it's just such a remarkable uh, sort of concept here by, uh, in the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And of course, if you don't know the book, um, it's, it's, a, it's a story of the devil and his, the senior devil instructing the junior devil on how to tempt and trap humans. He says it this way, the advice to his, his junior devil. One of the great allies at present is the church itself. Did you hear that right? One of our great allies. Remember, this is the devil talking. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners that that is. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. Visible versus invisible. This is a concept that has been discussed throughout church history, the way in which we can think of the church conceptually, abstractly, even as the church that we can't see, but God can see, versus that church which is visible. Actually, I said invisible first, didn't I? The invisible church, abstract, effortless, conceptual, platonic, if you will. The visible church, as they see her, the one that scares Screwtape to death, is the visible church. You know, the plethora of local, flesh-on-flesh, visible churches. That work-intensive church. And yes, we must say, that really messy church. That's the church which Screwtate advises to his junior devil to be very, very afraid of. Not this conceptual invisible church. Well, the debate and the discussion of the visible versus the invisible is before us yet again, prompted by a pandemic, prompted by virtuos virtuosity or vir virtualness, and the idea of what does it mean to be an assembly, a gathered people of God? Is it that important? And so it's with that context of this year that I found myself walking through, of course, the book of Matthew as I have been. And I find myself in God's providence here in chapter 16. And I think, hmm, something's looking a little different. Or maybe I say it alive to me today. And I hope it will be to you. Because concerning this visible, local, yes, messy church, well, we can all agree this has been a particularly messy year. You know, due to the unique and escalated convergence of the kind of trifecta of COVID-19 pandemic, 
the 2020 election year, racial reckoning, no matter what pastors and churches did in these visible churches, says one commentator, someone was angry. That's been true. It's been a rough year for that visible, local, messy church. According to the Barmer Group, I read it yesterday, thank you, you know who gave me the article yesterday. It is projected that one in five churches will close because of this trifecta. 34% of people who have once belonged and entangled themselves in that messy flesh on flesh church, that the 34% they admitted streaming a different church service online other than their own. Essentially, church hopping digitally. That brings me back to the screw tape letters. My dear Wormwood, says Screwtape to his under, his protege. You mentioned casually this letter that the patient, the patient, of course, is a young Christian being tempted, that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are doing? Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you not realize that unless it is due to indifference, that is a very dangerous thing? Remember, from the vantage point of the devil. And here's what he says. Oh, that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. Your affectionate Uncle Screwtape. We come to a passage that wants, particularly in this divine providence of context today, wants us to rediscover that visible, messy, powerful, almost magical place that we call the local parish church. Now this is a two-part series because there's two very remarkable declarations which will constitute part one and two. You heard them both read because I wanted to keep them together. One invokes a remarkable commendation or approval from our Lord. The other invokes the most harsh and intense rebuke that Christ ever gave a person, except for Satan himself. In fact, to say to someone, in this case, the very same person who gave such a commendable confession of faith concerning the Messiahship of Christ, that is Peter, to turn right around and look at Peter in the face and say, Satan, get behind me, it awakens us to think, what is happening here? What is so important that the author remembered this event and wrote it in a way that was clearly meant to be in a comparison way with the first declaration in contrast to the second? And perhaps to suggest just how vulnerable we can be. The very ones who profess faith in Christ, here Peter, is by this interesting 
resistance to Christ about what he was going to do received the rebuke that was only given to Satan when Satan tempted him. And so we need to look at this story, and it's meant to teach us a very important lesson about the kingdom of heaven, what it is and what it isn't. More specifically, what kind of power it relies on, this kingdom of heaven, what it is and what it isn't. That is particularly how that relates to the power, that ironic power, that is the only power that can bring humanity to salvation and eternal life. A power that is not of this world and that when we think like this world, we would never see or understand. That's the point of this two-part series. To see the power that God has given unto the church and how it is that even faithful Christians can be tempted to not see it, not trust in it. But let's pray first. Father, thank you for the day you bring us together as we see you bringing your congregation together throughout all of redemptive history. We join them in gathering and assembling, ecclesia. Help us, Lord, to understand the power and the privilege of such gathering together. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, this is a very pivotal moment in the book of Matthew. The first half of Matthew wants us to focus on Christ's identity, who he is. And today that culminates with Peter's great confession of faith that brings him a great commendation and approval from the Lord. The second half, though, gets exactly to the second declaration. The second half wants to focus on Christ's power and the manner in which he will work out that power in order to accomplish his messianic task. With that then, let's look at this first statement. We read how it was that in this culminating moment halfway through the, the book of Matthew, Jesus provokes the disciples and says, well, who do people say that I am? And they responded. And then he said, but who do you, those who've been watching me and ministering with me and standing with me, what have you learned so far about who I am? And Peter, of course, stood up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh my gosh. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He could not have gotten it better. Stated emphatically by use of this parallel statement using Old Testament language, the Christ who throughout redemptive history is described as the son of the living God. He brought these two parallel statements together in a way to make it emphatic. You are it. You are the one that everyone has been waiting for in redemptive history. The psalmist sings about it in 2.7. I will tell of the decree of the Lord, for he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. John 11, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one coming into the world. That is Martha at the death of her brother regarding the final resurrection. You see all of Matthew, the whole arrangement of it thus far, 
has been to bring you to that very simple conclusion. This is the one, the great king of kings who will invade the earth and bring about the very kingdom of God. What Matthew describes as the kingdom of heaven, because Matthew's gospel especially wants to emphasize that this is a kingdom not of this world. This is from heaven kind of a kingdom, which begs the question, well, how would it differ? This passage, part one, part two, wants to extol that, wants to particularly expose that in the manner which Peter was both at once brilliant and a fool. But again, that's the two parts. Let's look at this first one particularly. Notice the remarkable commendation that Jesus gives to him. He said to him, blessed are you. Blessed are you. There's no higher event that the priestly office of Christ could have brought down upon Simon Peter. Now, Simon Barjona. He said this though, notice carefully. How did you come to that, Peter? How did you get that? Where did this come from? Oh, he says, quote, for flesh and blood, that is not how you got it. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, here it is again, who is in heaven. This is a passage about the kind of wisdom that is powerful unto salvation. This is the kind of focus on a wisdom that's not of this world. And that many, when they are swimming in the words and the wisdom of this world, would miss it. Over and over again throughout the New Testament, particularly as you read the apostles like Paul in Corinthians, he's talking about how that it'll feel stupid to the world. That it will not be something that reveals itself with the kind of pomp and circumstance that the world's power reveals itself in. The regalia of a university graduation, the parade of the military, the liturgy of governing authorities, they are all visible. They all invoke upon us this kind of respect and awe. And here comes this power, this power from heaven. And it won't look like that even as that other power can't save you or give you eternal life. You see what's happening already here, don't you? And then he says to this Peter on this rock, what is this rock? It's not Peter the person, it's Peter's confession, the rock, the groundedness of the truth that God has given to Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia the word for assembly. Now I gave you a quick glimpse of the use of that word and how powerful that word was in the Old Testament. Over and over again in every redemptive era, there is a command with careful instructions about the people of God assembling together, gathering together. This ecclesia, this assembly, notice, comes with a promise. This ecclesia, this gathering, is the epicenter of the Messiah's work. And this epicenter work of the Messiah is so powerful that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How so? 
because I will give to this ecclesia the keys, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There it is again, heaven, not of this world. So that whatever this ecclesia binds on earth, it will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, it shall be loosed in heaven. This is what we're going to unpack for the rest of the sermon. We need to unpack it because that's what invoked this incredible and remarkable commendation. Blessed, blessed are you. That is to receive the salvation plan of God, if you could just paraphrase those words as they were used to the Old New Testament, as they were used in the temple every single week to put a blessing upon the people. We call it the benediction. Blessed are you to receive this knowledge and power. There it is. This ecclesia, literally a public assembly of citizens joined together under a common government. The two parts being carefully stated right here. You see it in Deuteronomy 4, how on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God at Herod, the Lord said to me, Ecclesia the people, gather the people to me that they may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days of, my, of the life on earth, etc. Deuteronomy 31, assemble the people Men, women, and little ones, and sojourners within their towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord. It goes on and on and on. This incredible admonition to assemble. Note especially, I will build who? What? Church? My church. This is not a church built by humans. It's not a church organized by humans. It's not a church whose choreography and whose government is initiated by humanity. It is an otherworldly assembly. Christ assumes the initiative and the responsibility for the construction of this new society for himself. This makes the church not a human organization, but a divine organization. I will build my church. Think about Colossians. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. That idea of being at the very top, if you will, and purposefulness of this church. It's an incredible thing to stop and think about it. This assembly that's so messy, that's so flesh on flesh, that requires so much work and labor is a divine institution by her very nature, owing its origin not to humanity but to Christ and associated together not in consequence of a human arrangement or choreography, but by Christ's own and positive institution. It's incredible. And what kind of power does this messy, visible, corporal place have given to it? Well, the word here is the keys. Very special word. Keys that has the power to bind and loose on earth what is bound and loosed in heaven. Let me read it again. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Always kingdom of heaven, notice. 
And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. These keys go back to a biblical context. I won't go through the minutia here. You'll find it in 1 Corinthians 9, Nehemiah 7. But every time it describes those who have the power of admitting or demitting those into the temple of God. It's more than just the key that opens up the door. It's the government that admits and demits those into the door in order to keep it sacred in its purpose and its use. I won't read those, you can go back. First Corinthians nine or Nehemiah seven, you'll see instances of that. In Isaiah 22, it speaks of the day then, the prophets long for the day when this new temple, this revived temple of God would come by virtue of the, of the Messiah. And he says this, and I will place on his shoulder the keys of the house of David. David, of course, being another messianic image in the Old Testament. I will place on his, the Messiah, the keys of the house of David, wherein he will open, he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Paraphrase that he alone has the authority and the wisdom and the power so that it can be nothing, let's just say, contrary to what Christ wants. It can't even be something that's beside what Christ wants. It's going to be all exclusively the Messiah who will govern this church by his word. It's a crucial thing we've been lurking at a lot this year. When and how can the church speak? What can it declare? What can it endorse? What can it affirm? It goes to the heart and soul of our power. It goes to the very core of our power that we say nothing save Christ because he alone has the power of the keys. Keys that have now been mediated and given in corporal fashion to this assembly. And that's why the admonition you heard read in the Old Testament to be careful to keep every word, every word. There's a casualness sadly, in modernity that has been given to the church, understandably, to be honest, with all of the disunity and defections and denominations, you begin to think that there is no definitive word that can be interpreted from Scripture, don't you? You just begin to believe that. You begin to think that, well, that's all good rhetoric, Pastor, but come on, man. I mean, no one's infallible in their interpretation of Scripture. Well, that's true. The visible church is a fallible church but it's still the magic place in so far as it holds to the words of Christ, in so far as it self-regulates in order to say nothing contrary to or besides Jesus Christ, in so far as it respects that core principle of the exclusivity of one God, one Lord, one word, and we go at it, we duke it out, we study it, we exegete it, and we go and do everything in our power to make sure that we say and do nothing as an assembly except that which can be definitively discerned from Scripture. And by the way, it's not so hard as you think. If you'll just look at it carefully, as I say it all the time, just read slowly. You'll be surprised how much. In fact, we have a doctrine that we call it. Came down through Augustine and over the sufficiency of Scripture. 
There's another doctrine, the idea of the clarity or what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. All of that. I mean, think of it. Would God give us this ecclesia, this powerful institution? Would he command that it be an institution that is exclusively under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and then make it hard to understand intentionally? As if was the purpose of God giving us revelation in scripture really to be kind of like a big joke or a or, or riddles or all these things that we tend to want to do with it, looking for mystery stuff in between. No, it's, yeah, you, you do got to study it. But at the end of the day, it's amazing how clear this revelation is for those who want to see it. And so that's what is meant by these keys, the power of binding and loosing, binding conscience Loosing conscience, binding admittance, excommunicating loosing admittance. You hear the meaning of these terms? It might be counterintuitive to you because we live in a post-enlightenment world where we think of authority and discipline and things like that as ugly words. But to those who understand Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is loving and powerful and authoritative, we know that the authority of God is never, ever anything except an expression of love for us. How did the Lord tell us to summarize the whole law of God? Anybody know? Love the Lord, love your neighbor. Love, love, love. We want to be bound. We want to be brought under the authority of love. The kingdom of God is love. There's nothing God would ever tell you to do, kids. Nothing that is not meant to make you flourish. And I shouldn't just single out kids. I should sing out parents, right kids? And I should single out adults and old people and young people. We're all in the same boat here. To bind is to bring someone under the authority and protection of the government of God's kingdom. This positive sense of binding someone into the governance of protection and care, but even the way in which God cares us is also, of course, to correct us, to rebuke us sometimes, to convict us of our sins, bringing us under government censure, always with the attempt, always with the intent of restoring a person to God believing that you never flourish more than when you are right with God. That's what this whole thing is about, this church. Making things right with your maker. That's what it means here to fear the Lord. To realize that the Lord and only the Lord, not all these institutions with all their pomp and circumstance of authority, only the Lord has the keys, the power to make you flourish, really. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? That the greatest mission on earth is to reconcile people to God? Because God alone is to be feared, meaning to be recognized as the one who holds the balance of your life in, your, in his hand? Have you really thought that out? What would you be willing to sabotage with respect to the church? 
What greater goal, what greater power could there be in all of the world than the power to reconcile someone with God? A power that would have eternal life consequences. Is there any other power, any other cause greater than that? And if not, then the church would submit herself to every word given by that Lord and regulate itself in a manner that would be nothing contrary to or beside it as something we would trust in to bring about human flourishing for eternity. That's the point of the binding and the loosing and the keys and all this language. Paul really gets into this in a very messy moment in the life of the Roman church. I would say the messy moment that we're going to in Romans 14 is about as messy as it's been this year for us and all those churches that have been struggling. You know, it's said that one in five churches will fold this year. That's how tough it's been. One in seven pastors are quitting particularly lead pastors. It's been a seriously bad year, you could say. It's been messy. And how did Paul handle that mess in his day? He looked at people who were destroying each other, who were backbiting, who were, who were pushing agendas that were not Christ and him crucified as greater agendas even than the body of Christ and the sacredness of the assembly. And he says, who are you to judge another servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Let him not who eats. And he goes through these things that they were talking about. He goes on how it is that in this regulated church under the exclusive authority of Christ that there's still room for us to agree to disagree about penultimate truths and penultimate purposes and penultimate things. Because the ultimate thing is this holy sacred assembly, this power source under the kingdom of God. He says, do not destroy what Christ himself died for. What was he talking about? This assembly. He says, so then each of us shall give an account himself to God. God is not, he's, he goes on to talk about how the peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things for which one may edify one another. On it goes. He's talking about the keys of the kingdom of God. How we are to govern ourselves under those keys carefully knowing that that is the only power that can save. Think about the power that has been just given to the church, this visible, fallible church. In a very similar passage in John, he gives the Great Commission, and he says it in a different way, but it's identical to what we just heard Matthew record that Christ said as well. That's the place where, where Jesus, fulfilling the temple priesthood in his ministry throughout John, that's been the focus, where he gathers these 12, just the 12, minus Judas, and he gives them a commission, and he says, as the Father sent me, so I sent you, the thesis of John being that he sent him as a temple, as a fulfillment of temple who is called to rebuild the temple. 
That's the whole focus of John 14 through 21. And this is the way he says it. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. King James Version. Here it is in the new RSV. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's binding and loosing, declaring who's in and who's out of this kingdom of God who have the grace of God against which the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. This is my final point. About this power, if you had any questions whatsoever how powerful it is, insofar as we preserve the sacred keys and the binding and loosing as I've just described, well, this image is a picture of great conflict, isn't it? Of which the gates of hell will not prevail. It's a gates of hell. That is, the picture you're given is a fortified city of the ancient Near East where they depended on fortresses to protect them from the enemies that would attack them. And what's really interesting about this is who's on the offense? Who's the aggressor in this analogy? The church. The church. By her proclamations and declarations, by her teachings and by the power that is brought into this church of the Holy Spirit, the church is destroying the kingdom of darkness of which the hell the gates of hell will not prevail. This fortified city of Satan's will not sustain itself. Oh, this has invoked so much flowery, if you will, commentary. St. Augustine read this and he says, oh, he cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for her mother. He's quoting Cyprian about 100 years earlier who made that analogy about the church and her power. The church without whom there is no forgiveness of sins, said St. Augustine. You think, well, oh, that's not a very reformed if you're in the reformed world. Don't worry about it. If you don't know what reformed is, you don't have to to understand what I'm about to say. Some would look to the great, you know, reformer, John Calvin. Listen to what John Calvin said here thinking about Cyprian's comment and Augustine's. That's, that's the thing about that. We've gone through now hundreds and hundreds of years. Quote, it's, a long, it's kind of a cool quote, so listen carefully. He says, let us learn even from the simple title mother how useful indeed, how necessary it is that we should know the visible church. Notice he said visible. For there is no other way to enter into life unless the mother conceives us in her womb, gives us birth, nourishes us from her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until, putting off mortal flesh until we die, we become like an angel. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all of our lives. That is such a beautiful statement. To think of this visible church as, our, as the mother of God. A God, a mother 
instituted by Christ himself, we're born within her, that is born again within her. We are sustained within her, nourished from her. We're kept and protected by her until finally we are, we've arrived in this developmental analogy. And what was arrival? You don't think of it this way. We think of arrival as when my kid becomes 26 years old. That's what I do. It's kind of going up and up and up. But finally around 26, I've discovered 28 maybe, somewhere around there. We go, okay, this is the product here. <laughs> Anna's here. Sorry, Anna. You're not a product. But it's interesting here the way this passage wants to talk about it. No, we don't arrive when we get into college or get a job or even get married and have children. We arrive when we die. That's what all this was about. Eternal life. And that precious church, your mother, walks with you the whole time. That's what Calvin is saying. It's so powerful. There is a kind of power that is not of this world. And the only place that you can have access to it is the church, the visible, messy, flesh-on-flesh corporal church where God's word becomes alive by his presence in the spirit to speak into our conscience in the vernacular and in the context of your life. Where the body of Christ becomes corporal, that is fleshly, that body of Christ vivified, livened in heaven, from it flows life from heaven into the life of a body politic we call the church the mystery of Holy Communion, where we taste and drink and eat and are bathed in this great power of the Holy Spirit that engrafts us into himself in the mystery of our sacramental union. Oh, you can see why Scroop Tate was scared to death of this visible, messy church. Calvin concludes, they therefore are insane who neglect this means, the church, hope to be perfect in Christ, as in the case of the fanatics who, preferred, who, who pretend to secret revelations of the Spirit, or the proud who content themselves with private readings of the Scripture and imagine they do not need the ministry of the church. The take-home is this. Next week, we're going to learn of the temptation that will work against everything we've said this week and how that temptation can come to any of us if it can come to Peter. So much so that Jesus will say, Satan, get behind me. It's a temptation particularly relevant to this world as we live it now. But let me just close with these take-homes. Yes, this has been a particularly messy year. One wherein the visible church has arguably been under attack like never before in my lifetime. The only time I can think of, even as a historian, as some of you know, I came here to school to do some history, and I wrote a history on the church, particularly in the border states during the Civil War, maybe only matched by that event, where in one of the chapters of my dissertation, it says the cities of conflict. It's a study of how many churches were destroyed by politically motivated schisms. I remember literally over in that library right there, one day, knowing I was about to plant this church when I was writing it, thinking, God, please don't let this be an omen. 
please, to see those pastors 150 years ago just crying for their congregations. Phew. It's all come back. It's been a tough year. Just met with the MA pastors all over the globe. Every one of them have had the toughest year of their life. Three are leaving their post. It's tough. The take home is not to stop believing. God had a purpose for this year. Maybe it was to awaken us from our casualness about the visible church. Maybe to awaken us to be born again, if you will, in our minds of thinking this is not something we can just coast in because we are in a spiritual battle and our battle is not against flesh and blood, lest anyone would be tempted to think like that. The take home is to rediscover the church, I think. It's true. Like over 70% of the church, churches in America, coupled the loss of some key families, have lost money this year, 70%. It's true we have seen an attrition of in-person worship and enter this next year with a degree of uncertainty. Every pastor I know is thinking about it. Who's gonna come back? Who have we lost? That's where we are right now. It's also true as to the scheme of the devil himself that the convenience of church hopping Yet another step away from the flesh-on-flesh -flesh visible church has been made much more accessible by virtual church attendance. Yes, let me make it clear, it was a concession, I think, that God gave us. Even as the scripture is given to us in our confession of faith that, that there is a time when we must miss the assembling together in person by reasons of mercy or necessity. This has just been one long year of mercy and necessity, hasn't it? But it's time. It's time to come back. All of us, come back. Let's don't grow complacent about this visibility thing. It's important. It's important, and I can say it from Scripture, or I wouldn't say it. This assembly is sacred. I've heard already as we started to come out, People are giving more sacrificially. They're giving more money. You were asked by the session not many weeks ago. And while I never look at what anybody gives, just so you know, never have it as long as I'm here, wouldn't have a clue. I know that people have been giving. I hear people praying more for the church than I've heard for a while. I hear people making greater efforts to make the church more accessible to the world that so desperately needs the power and the keys of a life. People are working hard. I see people and hear people aspiring to leadership positions. Probably the strongest nomination we've ever had in the history of this church happened two weeks ago, or three weeks, whatever it was. I've been talking to people, almost to a man and woman, they've said, yeah, I'll aspire. It's time. That's good news. Good stuff's happening right now. So here's the take home. Believe in the power of the keys. Believe in that visible, messy, flesh-on-flesh -flesh church wherein Christ is uniquely present and is not like that present anywhere else in the world. The only true epicenter of the kingdom of God. The only power 
that makes a difference in eternity. And if you are worshiping at home again, it's time to come back. Don't allow the devil to tempt you with the inconvenience of virtual worship. This was a temptation as far back as Israel. Did you know that? In Deuteronomy, and I'm going to give a qualifier in a minute. Don't turn me off. There's a qualifier. But all the way back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it warned Israel that when they got into the land of the pagan gods, which means a plethora of gods, gods that were made intentionally to be convenient to your, your ability to gather, he says, do not when you go over there to pagan land in Canaan, do not start worshiping under every leafy tree and every high mountain. That was a figure of speech to say, don't let convenience and ease control you worshiping. Ezekiel condemns Israel for that and says, that's the reason you were put into banishment. You were exiled. And he quotes that very passage. Why? Because only the church, this gathered assembly of people, has a choreographed service, a choreographed event. As you know, this service is literally taken from the scriptures, both the Old Testament temple service and the New Testament revelations heavenly service in four through five of Revelations. It's the only place and the only way. And so God was always meticulous about not just that we come to worship, but how and what we do in worship to, be, to protect that power. Now, I say this within good conscience. Come back. We took a kind of a hand thing. It's interesting. Know that, I, I don't know, this is a rough, but I would say at least 80% of us sitting here today have already been fully vaccinated or have already had an immunity from having it. Over 80% right here in this room. I don't know if you knew that, or at least that's what we showed from the hands a couple weeks ago. That's amazing. We're going to be meeting as a session after the uh, 19th, you know, when the Connecticut will come out and, and then execute the new guidance that's been given by C CDC this last week. Be in tune to that. You have to discern. I know not everyone's been vaccinated. I know there are younger children who have it and we're waiting for that to happen. I know there's exceptional situations in your health. You use your conscience. My point is it's not an issue of convenience, though. We do it, even if it takes work to do it. People would travel hours and hours to attend worship back in the day. Let's come back. And let's embrace the suck. This powerful church requires sacrifice. Very intentionally, it requires sacrifice. That's going to take you to next week. That audacious statement that for this church to exist, Jesus had to die. And so too will we. We will, if we want to participate in this power, have to die to personal stuff. It's always been that way. Take up your cross and follow after me. That's how the church receives its power. The power of love where the world sees a church suffering for her, not oppressing her with the powers of this world, but suffering for her under even the oppressive power of this world. That's the power. That's a foretaste. So we come to the table and remember Christ's suffering. Let's do it now.